What you want more than anything is you want to meet people with different experiences. And I've always sort of found you would see things that you would not automatically have come across. Hello and welcome to the Parliamentary Review Podcast, the podcast that has a soft spot for raising standards. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and in each episode, I'm joined by directors, CEOs, CFOs, government ministers, chairmen, and chairwomen. The aim is to discover who these people are, the people who get up each morning and make Britain work. We discuss the innovation that leads to success in this country, and we also get their take on the current political and economic state of the nation. Later on in this episode, you have the chance to hear Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Lord Pickles, former Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government and Chairman of the Conservative Party, and of course, current co-chairman of the Parliamentary Review. But for now, we're joined by Matthew Ballinger, Chief Executive of Fuse Metrics Group. Matthew, hello. Hello. Well, thank you for coming on the program today. Um, so it's been a few months since Fuse Metrics Group appeared in the Parliamentary Review. What has happened uh, in business in the ensuing months? Well, obviously, um, you know, given the um, yeah, the exposure we had in there in the Parliamentary Review, that, that did help us with, uh, particularly uh, from a marketing point of view, with our international growth. Because obviously with... The Brexit, I've said Brexit already so early in the talk. <laughs> um, you know, well, it's better than the it, other it, thing it, that we're going to be talking about as well. So, oh, well, exactly. Well, oh, we, the we'll days come that we missed when we were one. just talking about Brexit. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, you know, as you know, over the last um, year or sort of year of we're with with Brexit on the horizon and a certain amount of uncertainty. We look to expand our horizons a little bit into um, other export opportunities. Our solution that we offer is a web-based um, business operating system, if you like, a system that allows you to run your company in one platform. And so it allows us really to sell that anywhere where we where we can meet the accounting rules. So, you know, because the idea behind our platform is essentially one database and everything goes in it from accounts to HR to emails and diaries and uh, project sales or you know, everything you can think of, stock management and so on, we, we ended up um, looking to places like Australia, New Zealand, uh, Canada and saying, well, okay, look, we don't know what's going to be happening in Europe. And Although ultimately we think that, that, that everything will end up being absolutely fine and we'll all be friends and neighbours again, you know. Um, you know, there is going to be a turbulent time perhaps and um, we'll um, uh, you know, concentrate on, on markets that we already have a, you know, a sort of a clear relationship with that's, that's unlikely to change. Um, so, you know, over the past um, year, we've essentially managed to change our uh, change the So no clients really overseas apart from in, in predominantly France, where we have a number of clients, mm -hmm. to now uh, over nine percent of our global, of our income comes now from uh, you know, Australia, New Zealand, um, and Canada. So it's been quite a big shift just to try and diversify where our revenues are coming from. Um, and the other thing that's happened in our business uh, since then is we've become uh, we, we seem to have found a bit of a niche. Um, whereas, um, you know, whilst our systems could be uh, implemented in pretty much any company, uh, we've found a bit of a niche in the leisure industry, particularly in companies that require um, specialist booking systems for, uh, quite often for leisure activities that have a risk element because uh, companies obviously now wanting to tie back to wave, you know, have customers signing waivers and various other things. And we've implemented that within our point of sale system and uh, leisure booking systems and that's what's really allowed us to take a pre you know, definite defined product rather than a customizable product on a per sale basis to uh, a, a broader market. Now, of course, uh, a lot of time has passed since uh, Fuse Metrics Group uh, emerged from the primordial ooze of its creation in 2002. What was the yeah. market like at that period in time? Well, 
it was very different to now because we were um, very early uh, adopters of the concept of having everything uh, run from the cloud. So we started out uh, back in 2002, essentially, talking to people who had no idea what we were talking about. So we'd created this sort of software platform that ran in your web browser um, and was uh, and saying, well, we, you know, this will run your accounts and you, know, you, you can run your accounts in the cloud or it wasn't called the cloud then, but, you know, host, you know a hosted application that you could run your business within. People looked at us like we were mad. Um, because that market didn't exist. You didn't have, you know, the big players like uh, Salesforce or, um, you know, or, or um, you know, some of these other sort of providers that have now you know, made it pretty much the standard thing that you do everything on a sort of renting your software basis rather than buying stuff. So we were, we were, you know, that was a very interesting sort of start point um, in that we were trying to sort of create a market, but we were a tiny company to be trying to do that. And it's taken really, you know, we got overtaken obviously by, you know, the, the big boys, if you like, with big, uh, with big, big, big pockets to create that market. Although we were there, you know, many years before a lot of them, you know, um, from an accounting products point of view, Sage obviously were the, the big known name for a long, long time. And then they got, uh, uh, and then you had Zero come along, who everything was in the cloud, and Sage looked a bit left behind. Although now they've also brought forward a, another accounting product, but it's taken brands like those that people, you know, particularly SME market, would be very familiar with, to create the you know the that market properly and make it a normal thing to do. Now it's never questioned what we do, but I think that was the biggest challenge, really, from our point of view back in the day, was was uh, that we were always trying to create. Yeah, trying to, we were constantly having to explain what we were doing. Um, so, yeah, yeah, there's been a massive shift from, um, yeah, from, from yeah, in people's uh, kind of view of what is uh, what is now normal. But the thing is, we were always trying to explain this as being, uh, yeah, the computer rev- you know, evolution has sort of gone full cycle. Because if you go back to the earlier days of computing, you had your mainframe in your in your uh, office or factory or whatever you had and and you know the old green screen dumb terminals then we all went to sort of that sort of move forward into the sort of client server model with you know with Microsoft Windows server and so on and then we all started having laptops and mobile devices and suddenly there was data scattered all over the place on various people's different machines and our businesses are now sort of pulling all that back so they've got control of the business, of the business data mm. in their centralized systems. And that's effectively what, you know, I see the, you know, the, the, the modern software as a service um, sort of business application is effectively the mainframe of, you know, or the new, the new mainframe, if you like. And the web browser is the, you know, the being the, you know, the, the dumb terminal, the dumb, you know, the replacement of the green screen. So we have, I think, seen, you know, computers go up to a full cycle and we're back to the same concepts we had at the very start. Well, that's a very interesting concept, I think, uh, that everything, uh, not to get too philosophical, but it does seem to go rather full circle. I mean, we started off with glass bottles. We seem to be going back to glass bottles and paper straws and so on and so forth. So uh, it's, uh, you know, hold on to those, uh, you know, clogs. They're going to come back into style at some point. Um, Now, of course, uh, coronavirus has been dominating things as of late, and we will get to it. Uh, but before uh, we do, um, we have now left the European Union. Uh, have you seen any yeah. impact on that uh, uh, decision within your business uh, since that uh, came into effect? As yet, no. But then I think we wouldn't really expect to in this transition period. And we obviously don't know whether that transition period, given the you know, coronavirus, uh, which we will come to, whether that will then force or be used as an excuse to extend that transition period mm-hmm. um, I rather suspect it will do um, and again so I wouldn't really expect yet to see any great um, you know, great great changes but I think you know in the in the immediate uh, short term but the you know, we are still being approached by um, you know, potential clients from from Europe um, and I think everyone's just that we've spoken to is just taking the view of somewhere or another will make this work. Um, so there's a quite a pragmatic attitude. I mean, we're talking to some companies in Germany and, and France and, and, and 
we're just saying, well, somehow or another we'll make it work. And, and I think that's always what we felt would happen to some degree as the markets would sort, you know, would largely sort themselves out. Obviously, we're in a very specific, specific niche field. Um, yeah, and yeah, we're, we're selling effectively a serve, an online service. Um, so it may be, um, yeah, I would suspect it may be very, very different for people in other industries. Um, but it would be, be very interesting to see what, uh, you know, what, yeah, yeah, what the, what the long-term effects will be. I mean, there could be, yeah, there could be some great positives, but um, I suspect at the moment with the, you know, we're, we're, you know, the manufacturing businesses and so on, I think we'll probably be suffering quite significantly, but um, I honestly don't know. I can only speak about our own experience, really. Well, speaking of the long-term effects on the market, how do you think the market uh, for cloud computing is going to change over the next 10, 15 years? I think it's going to become more and more dominated by a handful of key players. I mean, already it's heavily dominated by uh, Amazon with their AWS cloud computing um, platform and uh, and Microsoft Azure um, being the, you know, the, the the big competitor, I suppose. Um, the I think what will happen there will be a, a great deal more applications um, that are effectively built and hosted on those platforms but I suspect over time a lot of those you know the applications that, that, that gather big subscribers will get swallowed up by those big players who you know like to buy up those applications it's again uh, back to the, it's almost like social media and, and so on where you know uh, people you know the bigger companies were just buying up all of the you know the, the content creators or the people that got the users I, I rather suspect will go through that same game again where you know, the big platform owners want to own all the content because they've got all the money, essentially. <laughs> so a further centralization is in the cards. That would be my that would be my best guess at this stage, yeah. Now, of course, you focus uh, primarily uh, in the uh, the leisure sector, uh, which is now due to the current outbreak of the coronavirus taking a major hit. The government's now encouraging social distancing. Attractions are closing. What do you think uh, government contingency plans for the leisure sector should look like at this period in time? What we're hearing from clients at the moment is that, you know, at this very moment in time, there is not a... Uh, a definite you must close there is a we would advise you know, effectively and we, we advise you to close um which is leaving companies in a, in a in a quandary because they're looking at their insurance and saying well if we're forced to close we may have some you know some way of uh you know covering our costs perhaps through insurance um but where it's a uh, a, you, you probably should close or <laughs> recommend you close, then they, they haven't got that ability because that would then be their choice to close. Of course. And so I think we, the, the, those clients that, we, that I've spoken to are very concerned that yeah, there, is, there isn't uh, an absolute yeah, um, you know, clear um, decision about what they should, you know, what, you know, what they must do. I think if they mm. felt... They were compelled to do something, so then I think it'd be very different. So, speaking to a client in, in um, Paris yesterday, who have a, a big attraction in the, the in the centre of Paris, they've actually been compelled to shut for a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were they were told a couple of days ago you know, that their attraction was closed. Period. Um, so, yeah, that's. I think that gave them a great deal more um, certainty, and, uh, and I think yeah, that that's their biggest worry is that people are not being told. Yeah, these these attractions are staying open largely here at the moment, but you know they're in, they're, they're really seem because of the, the very few you know, there's very few sort of people coming through the doors. People are obviously very nervous. They're being asked for you know there's lots of cancellations coming in uh, and so on. So I think it could be a, you know, an absolute decimation of uh, of bookings uh, across the sector, which will ultimately lead to. Um, people looking at their staffing uh, levels, I would suspect quite a lot of um, you know, uh, staffing reductions across across the industry. I mean, I think from a government's point of view, you know, which was really your question, uh, I, I think that at the moment there is just a, a, a lack of, of of absolute clarity, and that's that's what's causing the majority of their. Um, you know, their concerns because you know, they, they don't know exactly what which way to turn. 
So, in other words, the government should just uh, pull the trigger on uh, mandatory closures uh, to resol- resolve the I'm issues in the market. I think, I think that, that's right. I think they, 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 they've got to bite the bullet and they say pull the trigger. And um, yeah, we're seeing it for much larger venues yeah, with you know, gatherings of 5,000 or more and so on. So lots of rock yeah, music venues and things being closed and so on. But it's these smaller family-operated businesses, which you know, which is a huge proportion of the UK leisure industry, is mm-hmm. you know, family-owned attractions. And um, these are the people who are probably ultimately most vulnerable um, long-term to the financial impact of this virus. Well, of course, you have other uh, attraction-based industries, uh, such as National Trust or English Heritage, that the majority of their staffing comes through volunteers. Um, and yeah. of course, it, it, co- it would cost them much less to shut down than a commercial attraction, uh, whether it be a, a small family-run uh, attraction or a, a larger, co- uh, much more commercial attraction. Uh, do you believe that there needs to be um, a guideline system in place for the next pandemic when this happens again? Very much so. I mean, I was, I, we, um, you know, things that we've done here, you know, within our own businesses, we've, we've actually, as part of, of preparations for this, we actually changed our phone systems to be entirely cloud-based. We've made other preparations. We've put teams at home predominantly, and you know, we're using video conferencing and so on. So we've created our business sort of continuity plan for this year. We had it for many other scenarios that we uh, hope we never have to actually action. But again, you know, we, we we never really thought about a pandemic really being a serious thing that would happen to the degree that, that we've seen this this country and others go into this almost almost lockdown state. And so you know, we're yeah, we're we're yeah, we now have a, a proper action plan for should this happen again. And I think this is exactly what's gonna happen across the rest of the industry. And we need to and I, and I rather suspect that now we've done this once, um, governments will uh, not think it will be will be far more likely to um, to to do the same you know same or similar thing again as we have you know no doubt we will have you know there, there seems to be some new new virus that's going to kill us all every every year or two with you know SARS or Ebola or something you know that every year that we're all uh, you know the media is full of uh, and and does does spread around around the globe to a degree. Um, I rather suspect that you know, we're going to be seeing this again every every few years. Now, that actually brings up uh, quite a good point. Of course, we want people uh, to be safe. We want uh, sensible precautions to be taken. But oftentimes, uh, situations like this are uh, sometimes exploited by governments to increase uh, government authority uh, during the period of the emergency. You see an expansion of, uh, of government authority in this sort of region. Uh, and then when it's over, it contracts, but not all the way back. So you end up with a larger regulatory state at the end of one of these things than you started out with. Um, do you feel that this could be a threat to civil liberties in the future? It may well be, and I think there is yeah, there is an argument that we've gone through a period of absolute chaos politically, as have a number of other countries in the world, and that what people cry out for ultimately is rules. And I think that given that this, you know, that the, the governments now are obviously, um, you know, taking far more control over people's lives under the guise of you know, this particular action. Uh, you're absolutely right. I think that they will give back most controls, but not all, and that could be a yeah, a little creep of, uh, of power, but people, I think, ultimately are, are saying well, they like control and, and order, and so when it's given back to them, mostly, um, you know, I think they, people will go, "Oh, that's great, we're all back to normal." But actually, there's now, as you say, more power and control from the centre, um, which possibly may you know, bring back some stability to, um, you know, to the. Um, Political system, but obviously long term, that, that's sort of leading down the road of a, you know, a more sort of totalitarian society, which is probably not desirable. <laughs> Indeed. Now, of course, you manage a, <laughs> a, a close knit team, uh, and I'm sure they're the secret to your success. But how have they uh, adapted uh, to uh, these changes in the market, uh, be it data protection, Brexit, or uh, coronavirus? Uh, has this been a, a difficult challenge to adapt to? 
I think it's it, it, it certainly um, yeah we, we have quite a, quite a, um, a, a, a workforce that is fairly split between very technical people and very outgoing people are kind of more um, our customer care team our sales team and so on the the from the development team point of view they are you know, you know typical software developers I used to be one so I can say this but yeah you know, they'd be quite happy if I stuck them in a dark room with no windows and a computer and, a, and bought them a pizza every few uh, every day um, in the nicest possible way they actually kind of like being isolated you know largely speaking um, and yeah, so, so, so this sort of coronavirus thing, you know, they're quite happy. I say, oh, work at home. And they're all, yeah, great, okay, brilliant. Um, whereas the sales teams are more so, you know, the um, you know, customer care, sales, marketing, and so on, you know, they're wanting to be out interacting with people, you know, visiting people. And it's, it's they're now sort of at home and we're having to putting in video, video meetings, you know, video conference calls and things between them just that they've got, you know, they've got that sort of social interaction that they would normally otherwise have by being out and about on the road or on the, the calls. I mean, our customer care phone lines have virtually stopped ringing, um, which is, you know, um, yeah, you know, we've got you know, a number of people sitting here sort of to answer the phone and, and no calls. Mm. And so you know, it, is, it is going to be an interesting uh, time as we work out the best way you know, of you know, keeping people safe and maybe isolate, you know, sending them, you know, we sent obviously about half our workforce and asked them to work at home with the view that we may then swap them over. Because, I mean, this is the, the, the thing we're not sure about is how long this is going to go on for, any kind of serious um, um social distancing, I suspect, you know, probably four weeks or more. And so at the moment we've got half our team at home working and you know, the intention is that after 14 days of them being effectively isolated, that we will then um, swap over the teams um, just because I think people are going to go stare crazy uh, or at least essentially them all going to go stare crazy just sort of not having that social interaction of being with people. You know, a lot of, you know, we've got a, a lot of, you know, yeah, young or um, yeah, people living on their own, you know, single people living on their own. And you know, if we send them home, they, they, there's an argument, they, they're, they're not going to see anybody physically for a month. Mm. You know, so that, that, can't, that can't be good for anybody. Well, of course, uh, there are going to be uh, restrictions. Uh, and another restriction that we've seen uh, come up is uh, data protection, of course. Um, how have you seen uh, the market change with relation to data protection that obviously informs and influences what customers want from a software product? But would you say it's a high priority for everyone uh, Fuse Metrics works with? Um, I think, largely speaking, um, they... Um, it, 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 I think it's, it, there was a lot of heightened awareness by consumers um, following the sort of GDPR regulations coming in on stream. And we put in place systems to make it very easy for our customers to manage that data and allow their, their customers to manage their own data. Um, so, so it's become less of an, you know, an issue of, you know, People, um, you know, wanting to, you know, know exactly what data's held, we've made it available for them, so they can see this is exactly what we hold for you, and so on. Um, so we've we've tried to take the sting out of it for our customers where possible, but you know, largely speaking, I think it's sort of seen as a, um, I think the current regulations perhaps a little heavy-handed and 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 weight too heavily in, in, in towards the con- you know, largely to the consumer because, you know. It's actually put an increased burden on business to support you know, um, requests for information and so on. Whereas ultimately, you know, these these customers have are customers of that business and have you know have made some purchase, and it becomes a bit a bit of a, a challenge to manage what is the legitimate business requirement for me to hang on to this data, even if a customer asks for it to be deleted and so on, because you've got a duty to keep accounting records and so on and so forth. And so, I think there was a lot of muddy water in there that that that, that still you know you know some some time down the down the line here from GDPR coming in where actually most you know, I think a lot of businesses don't really know um, what the rules are. Do you believe GDPR was a mistake? 
largely, yes. I think it was overkill. And I think you know, the rules we had in place already in the UK, specifically you know, in particular, I don't know about other countries, but certainly in the UK, uh, I think the, you know, the, the situation we had in place was already you know, you know, pretty, pretty effective. Mm. Uh, well, I think there is a lot of misinterpretation around GDPR as well, especially amongst the general public, um, because it has become this kind of magic word. Uh, you, know, you get emails all the time, do the GDPR, blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> exactly, it, it, yeah. it, does, it does seem to be one of those, those kind of catch-all uh, laws that seems to be applied everywhere. Do you think there will be an effort uh, once we uh, finish the transition period uh, to roll some of this GDPR uh, regulation back? Um. I, the government's like rolling back anything. Um, I I don't know. I, I think it wouldn't be a bad idea um, to, to do that. But um, whether there is really the political will to stir it up again, I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I think largely, the as you say, the, you know, the, the consumer generally is quite misinformed uh, by about what, what, what GDPR actually is, is there to do. And as you say, it's used as a as a weapon and a threat uh, to you know to deal with it with with, with a, an unrelated complaint regularly. Yes, indeed. You know, um, uh, and so you know, I think that, uh, and a lot of businesses are very scared of it. Where actually, if they've got you know you know appropriate, good, proper you know, records and audit trails of what they've done with customer data, then they've really got nothing to fear. Yeah, well, it seems to have become the the new uh, "you're violating my human rights" sort of rallying cry. <laughs> Um, but, yeah. uh, you know, people, people are on the whole, uh, sensible. And I think this too will pass out of fashion into, uh, the next, the next great war, war cry. Uh, but that being said, um, unfortunately our time together has drawn to its close. Uh, but it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, uh, Matthew and, uh, please do stay healthy. And, uh, I look forward to speaking with you again. And you, Matt. Thank you very much. It's been a joy talking with you. Thank you. I hope that you all enjoyed our chat with Matthew Ballinger, especially learning more about the challenges facing the sector and how the whole team at Fuse Metrics Group are continuing to raise standards. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with the Parliamentary Review Co-Chairman, Lord Pickles. Lord Pickles served as Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government in David Cameron's Cabinet before receiving a peerage in 2018. Lord Pickles remains active as the United Kingdom's anti-corruption champion and the country's special envoy for post-Holocaust issues, as well as being a keen vexologist that's flags to you and I. And now, Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Lord Pickles. Lord Pickles, thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure. Um, now, I'm sure you won't uh, mind me reminding the listeners that uh, you've been involved in politics, both local and national, for quite a number of decades, um, indeed before we, the days we were in the common market. Um, you know, given your experience over those years, um, what thoughts have you had over the last few weeks and months about the current political uh, situation the country finds itself in? situation is quite dire because we have um, a parliament that um, is by and large useless. It's like a bored teenager on a long drive and um, it wants, it knows what it doesn't want and it's so bored with Brexit but it can't agree. So no matter what you put up, it's against it. Are you in favour of a referendum? No, we don't want that. Are you in favour of uh, remaining within the single man? No, we don't want that. Are you in favour of... Cause, no, we don't want to do that. No, no. And are you in favour of leaving without a deal? No, we don't want to do that. So it's against everything. But it, there isn't enough votes to be in favour of something. And it could be by the time this, this podcast goes out that, that uh, Boris has uh, started on the process of the bill because we'll be voting on that today. Uh, but even then... What people don't seem to understand, this is not the end of Brexit. This is barely opening the door of Brexit. We've got years of negotiations about about trade agreements, relationships with uh, with Europe, putting uh, putting down pieces of legislation. We get our agriculture, our fisheries, our financial service into place. Brexit is going to go on and on and on and on. I'm sure we are. 
Um, now, uh, the question is, I, I should actually remind listeners that we are talking on the day that the second reading of the European Bureau Act will uh, take place. So, as we speak, we don't quite know, as well, perhaps like the government front bench don't know what's going to happen. Um, you compare Parliament to a petulant teenager, what do you do to a petulant teenager to sort it out? Um, is there a chance that it will see sense and push this through this bill without wrecking amendments? Is there a chance it will vote for its own, uh, for a general election? What do you, how do you see this playing out at the moment? The sensible thing will be to put this deal through because I've always been of the view a deal is better than no deal because this is just the beginning. In order to start the process of Brexit, start the process of uh, the United Kingdom taking over powers that it's, uh, it's not really exercised for 40 odd years, the smart thing is to get this thing through now. But in a way, it's not about Brexit itself. If there was a free vote, this deal would have gone through. Mrs May's deal would have gone through. But it's about politics. It's about a Labour Party that thinks it has a chance uh, trying to make the Prime Minister, whether it was Theresa May or Boris Johnson, uh, look as though that they are uh, in office but not in power, of um, delaying as long as possible. There's a lot of talk about... Um, an election uh, in the autumn, maybe back end of November, beginning of uh, of December, uh, something for us to look forward to before Christmas. It's beginning to look less likely. It's beginning to look as though they might want to drag it into spring to get as far away as possible um, from the rather decisive moment that uh, Boris came back with a deal. We have to remind ourselves that nobody thought he could deliver um, a deal and it does quite shock them and if you remember all this process went through in order to ensure that we are left without a deal when we have a deal suddenly well no it's not that kind of deal we don't want that kind of deal we want something different I think the vast majority of people in this country whether remain or leave uh, now would be very satisfied for this to come to a able um, conclusion and as correctly just said, uh, because when it does come to those on, in the opposition with claims want this to work, and then to, uh, uh, introduce wrecking amendments, they introduce uh, new objections to it, the general public are getting quite frustrated. But you've got to understand that quite a lot of people don't get beyond a small area within Westminster, sometimes cliche referred to as the Westminster bubble and go back to their own patch. Now, by and large, everybody hates their MP, except when they're at home, doing the fairs, doing, you know, uh, wandering around, uh, helping people. So they, in a way, they're cosseted to that great, which I feel is coming as a tsunami of change. I do, uh, of course, MP for Brentwood for... Uh, uh, 25 for, years. Absolutely. Um, what would you, I mean, of course you, President there as well, despite being a proud auction, obviously representing a good Essex seat. What would you say to your, your old constituents right now? Hang in there, it'll be all right. Well, um, uh, you're, well, it's different when you're a member of parliament because you know you've got to kind of toe the government line a little bit. So, one thing I found now is I've got my weekend back and I say what I want, and uh, I think I would say to um our constituents is that it is pretty hopeless down there. Thanks, well, on that, uh, I think, uh, honest assessment, it's something I think the Parliamentary Review has always done quite well, talking frankly about problems, issues, and also not just good practice, but leadership. Well, I always used to, I mean, I always used to read it when I was a, a member of Parliament, um, because, I mean, what you want more than anything is you want to meet people with different experiences. Mm. And I've always sort of found... Uh, it quite a, um, uh, a kind of a chatty magazine, but also you would see things that you would not automatically have come across. I certainly have attended um, the receptions over the year, and it's amazing the things you kind of pick up. And I think it's important to stress it's not because uh, uh, politicians are, are, are uninterested, because honestly, as you will know more than anyone, it's an issue of time. 
and to be able to have a channel uh, and a platform where you can keep communication lines between businesses, schools, and policymakers is so exceptionally important. No, I think so, and you know, and it's important that it's beholding to nobody. People, um, uh, you know, pay for to be part of the publication, pay for to be uh, um, members, and it's a way of not beholding to government, not beholding to anything. Uh, no, uh, you're echoing the words, of course, your fellow uh, chairman, uh, Lord Blunkett, has said. So, what some might not know uh, is that you started your political journey, perhaps even further left than David Blunkett. Oh, absolutely, I was a communist. Now, uh, what, what, uh, what was it? At the age of 14, I got... Uh, I was bought um, the um, <clears throat> Trotsky's History of the Russian Revolution, and I read it from cover to cover. I tried to read it a few years back, and I just couldn't follow anything. Oh, so I was going to say, perhaps you might know the minds of the uh, show front bench better than, better than they do themselves. From my position when I first joined, I would regard them as recalcitrant uh, <laughs> running dogs of the capitalist system. Now, what was it that, that uh, moved you from radical Marxist to running uh, the only uh, inner city council controlled by the Conservatives in the 80s? Well, I was very young, and um, I was fascinated by what was happening in um, uh, in what was then Czechoslovakia and uh, Dubček, and the the revolution that was taking place there inside communism, and the way in which uh, he was uh, repressed by uh, by uh, by repression, yeah, and the tanks and taking over. I was so angry. And I'm 16, remember? I'm really angry. I thought, what's the most outrageous thing I can do? Um, I will join the, um, I'll join the Conservative Party as a protest. And I kind of sticked around, and my family thought it was the funniest thing that ever happened. Uh, to it, I was Eric the Tory, and um, well, I think you announced this quite grandly as a, as, a, as a grand protest. I did indeed, but um, do you know, I kept going down, and um, it was a it was an exciting time. Um, people were developing the ideas of what the Conservative Party should be. Selsdon man, mm. even Heath looked radical. We had different ideas and just it eventually clicked. And at some point, I became a Conservative. And that was 51 years ago. I think I'm definitely 100% a Tory now. Through and through. Through and through. Although I do know the story, most, most uh, people might Guess that a, 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 a dialogue conservative like yourself would have perhaps a portrait of uh, Mr. Satchel or Mr. Churchill in their office, but uh, who is it that you have? Uh, at um, at Che Guevara. Uh, which always, I always had him over my uh, left shoulder for visitors, and they always used to kind of, you see their eyes going up and thinking, who, I can't possibly be. <laughs> Someone asked me if it was Desi Arnaz, the fellow that was married to Lucille Ball. But no, the reason I, I did that was to remind me and to remind my uh, officials that without constant vigilance, the cigar-chomping commies would take over. <laughs> I, I'm sure David Bunk was in the room to reply to that, actually. Um, but um, in, in, in that long journey, you eventually ended up, of course, in 2010, doing something most Conservatives would never thought they would have to do, but in a coalition government with, the, of all people, the Liberal Democrats. That's right. Now, um, for something I think perhaps today more than ever, uh, people and our politics seems to be almost wholly determined um, on how we voted in a referendum three years ago. Yeah, I mean, the most normal thing would happen after something like that mm. would be the would be the country would come together. And if anything we're 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 more divided. I mean I thought working in the coalition, I'm proud to have been part mm. of that coalition. Um, I'm proud to have worked alongside the Liberal Democrats who I think realised that like all minority partners in a in a coalition they would suffer at the polls. Do you think we've lost the ability uh, recently as a, as a as a people to work with those that we might disagree with on, on issues more than we used to. I'm not sure that's right. Um, I mean, you can see various members of the Conservative Party working closely with Liberal Democrats and Labour mm. to defeat their own government. But it's not a thing I think I would want to encourage. Quite. Um, and I, I should remind listeners, we are calling this the In Victoria. Um, just over the road, uh, 
Cardinal Place, uh, a fantastically new development site which wouldn't have been there without some of uh, your uh, uh, legislation. What was the proudest? I, I personally approved it. Absolutely. Um, yeah. What was the proudest moment you think in uh, serving Secretary for five years? It's uh, my actual project moment. We did a thing called uh, Triple Families, which was the first centre-right uh, attempt to deal with poverty and to deal with mm. um, difficult families that were causing a disproportionately large amount of um, of, of call upon the um, uh, upon the state. And it was on the basis of tough love. It's on the basis of getting people into jobs. It's about dealing with. Uh, uh, the kind of the whole, the family as a whole, not just one or two individuals that, had a, that were having a problem. And I'm pleased that it's continued. Um, and since, I should very much stress, since of course you're uh, stepped down being an MP, you do have your weekends back, but that's not to say you haven't remained very active and very um, uh, busy. Of course, because you're the government's anti corruption uh, champion, shone the harsh light of day over malpractice in the local government. Um, indeed, the Queen's speech. We've just had include some of uh, your recommendations from uh, 2016. Um, I think a couple of things on that. First of all, are you surprised? Um, I may imagine you may not be at some of the backlash towards in this country introducing uh, voter ID for voting. It is absurd, and it's particularly absurd coming from the Labour Party, because it was largely Labour's vulnerability uh, that got my interest in trying to do something about it. And um, it's a bit like saying, you know, you're requiring people to show some ID uh, that this is suppressing voting. It's a bit like saying the post office is suppressing parcels because they demand to see uh, uh, some ID. I think um, they've got um, uh, a bee into their bonnet that this is something like they've got in the state to repress it's not mm. it's about giving confidence to the system now the electoral commission and foreign observers have warned us for such a long time that our electoral system is vulnerable and it's this to misquote um uh, john major we are really sort of old males cycling to even song and, and war band yeah I mean, it's such a basic thing and it's an important thing and it was kind of interesting uh, in some of the trials um, they did um, a focus group with a bunch of uh, young uh, Asian girls and they said they thought the process of photo ID would actually give them a greater confidence in the fairness of the system I met an all kinds of uh, recommendations to stop uh, postal fraud harvesting, uh, to, to, to stop various fraud taking place, to stop um, intimidation at counts, to stop intimidation outside polling stations. And I, I think you referenced it earlier, the, the Westminster bubble, a lot of the, the places where this occurs and the places where this does go on are places where perhaps uh, many members, many people in the press don't usually go to. No, they, no, I don't. Uh, uh, we saw uh, a YouGov poll that said the overwhelming majority, well in the 60%, thought these, uh, this idea was sensible. Yeah, and I, 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 um, I, I imagine you're quite proud that that recommendation is uh, in the speech. Yes, I mean, I'm a bit frustrated they didn't do it sooner, but it's, nevertheless, I'm very happy that it, they, they are doing it. It's as if the government's time has been taken up by something else and we're not focused on anything domestic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but with a man, though, with his roots in uh, local government, uh, do you think, and, and how much you've worked with, this, with that report, especially looking at them carefully, how would you rate our current state of local municipal politics? Local government's very good. I mean, local government, don't get me wrong, it's, uh, it's by and large corruption free and it, it does a remarkably good job. And it was, in truth, my worries about local government and that these measures were brought in. I don't believe the fraud is big enough to be able to take a parliamentary seat, but it is big enough to take a council. And if you are negligent, uncaring about the probity of the poll, you're likely to be equally negligent about the awarding of contracts uh, 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 to your friends. Uh, so it's, it's all passed up. But look, government is, is, is a very enduring part of our constitution. I got a bit stick because we had to take some money from them, but 
by and large, they survive very well. Excellent. Now, uh, beyond um, obviously uh, that work, you also, of course, uh, the British envoy for uh, post-Holocaust issues. Yeah, sure. I think it's very dear to your heart. Um, I know you've done some fantastic uh, work recently, including with uh, a former Shadow Chancellor from the Review at uh, Balls. Um, would you mind, uh, if you could just let the listeners know what projects you are working on with that and, and really the importance that has to so many communities around well, I used to be very unpleasant about Ed Ball, and he used to be very unpleasant about me. But I found working with him uh, remarkably easy, and we've not had a, a single row in two years. And by now, we're beginning to be able to, to finish each other's sentences. We're building a, a memorial to the Holocaust so next to Parliament uh, with a learning centre below it. And the reason why the Prime Minister chose that site is that um, it was David Cameron and he wanted to ensure that when people left the memorial they would look and see Parliament and recognise that he was the last bastion against tyranny but more important to remind people who work in Parliament that, that the legislature has a choice it can either protect its citizens or it can oppress its citizens and we do know that um, uh, that it was a compliant legislature that brought in the Nuremberg uh, laws. And at a time when there are parts of Europe that are seeking to rewrite their history and seeking to see themselves as only the victims of the Nazis, I'm determined that we should tell the truth in an unblinking uh, way. Um, we are, I suppose, at a critical crossroads when the last survivor is likely to uh, be no longer with us within the next decade and a half. And at that point, we do know that um, uh, history starts to be reassessed. I think it was Simon Sharma that uh, talked about this. And he was referring to the French Revolution. And of course, most of the books written in the 1850s are the ones that have uh, shaped um, our view of the French Revolution. But the difference is this, that uh, slightly over 100 years ago, my grandfather, Edgar, mm. grabbed hold of his Lee Enfield and walked out of a trench in the Somme and walked towards um, the Germans. And within a few minutes, uh, most of the people who bring being brought up with, most of his friends were dead. Nobody doubts that he did that. But there's a whole industry out there that doubts that the Holocaust took place. So that's why it's important that we help frame that narrative. And uh, any reference as well, it's, it's, it's so important, especially at this, this time, this time of history, so many years afterwards, that uh, people, young people in schools get the correct education about it. How do we compare as a country in doing that? compared to some of our European friends? We, um, I think, compare remarkably well, uh, and particularly because we've got a mixture of things. Uh, we, ins we ensure through the lessons of Auschwitz that two pupils from every secondary school go to Auschwitz each year, uh, that they have a preliminary meeting, uh, a visit and a, a wrap-up. We ensure that um, Holocaust Day um, uh, is remembered in January, and I can remember starting that, uh, or I'm not starting it, but being part uh, of a foot soldier of people that put it together. And you know, it was like one man and a dog, but now it's quite a, a massive, it's, it's a massive um, event. So I think we are quite good at remembering that. I think where we perhaps do need to have a wider understanding is beyond the death counts. And we need to kind of understand uh, the Anstattgruppen, which was the roving murder squads, um, how um, important they were. You were more likely to have been shot in a ditch than to end up in a, in a death camp. Um, and uh, they, the interland of that is Lithuania, where I was uh, last week uh, talking to colleagues and through, through Belarus and the Ukraine. And it's really important that we ensure that we we register where those death sites are. And I think uh, certainly, uh, and I'm going to sit down next to speak, which hopefully won't be too uh, long away. It's and I think we'd be very happy to, to keep 
updates and how that, how that project is going, because it's so important people do need to be aware of it. Um, looking to the future, though, um, I imagine you're actually very uh, content and happy. Former Prime Minister, friend and colleague David Cameron just released his book, and you came you know, quite unscathed from it. I came out, it was very nice about yes. it. Um, I even bought the audio version because he was reading it and he obviously you know, but there was a fair bit of affection and, and, yes. and I'm rather glad they left out one or two of the other embarrassing things <laughs> maybe another time yeah. yes. um, but um, it's um, important I think uh, I'm conscious of the time so, but I'm, I think it's important that today people have become so perhaps um, caught up in what's happening in this country regarding Brexit. Um, looking to the future, how would you and what would you say that it's a positive thing that, that this country has to look forward to? Well, we're a large trade. We're a large trading nation. We're a large uh, economy. We're a liberal uh, uh, democracy, and it would be good to get through uh, Brexit over the coming years, and it would be good to start to look at some of the social issues uh, that we need to tackle, those that have been left behind uh, by our economic uh, uh, progress and it will be good to see some solid investment in this country both in terms of its infrastructure but also in, in terms of the way it operates as a democracy. And I know this is going to be a huge focus of the next review. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. As always, it's been a pleasure interviewing and learning from our guests. I hope that you all enjoyed listening. Until next time, let's raise a glass to raising standards. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can find every episode on iTunes, YouTube, and Spotify. The views expressed by each guest in the podcast are their own. They do not represent the opinions of the Parliamentary Review, Westminster Publications, Lord Pickles, Lord Blunkett, David Curry, or any other guest on the podcast. If you'd like to know more about the Parliamentary Review, please visit www.theparliamentaryreview.co.uk.